Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. When Jacinda Ardern stepped down from her role as Prime Minister of New Zealand in early 2023, she said she was burnt out and couldn't do the job to the best of her ability anymore. And it was such a surprise that she said this, not only because she was such a successful global leader, and there aren't many successful women global leaders, are there? It was the way she did it, with such humility, and it just felt real, a a refreshing change. And it got me thinking, how much harder is it for women to stay at the top of their political game? And to have this discussion, I've asked here someone who I thought would be very frank about it and has actually had the experience of standing for the leadership of her party, although she didn't win, Labour MP Jess Phillips. And I think I know her well enough to be able to talk about that moment in her life without her getting too upset. And to give us some context and background, I've also invited... Rainbow Murray. She's a professor of politics who researches into politics and gender and I think the two of them together might really help me understand a lot more about this issue. But first Melissa, my producer, is here as always for a chat. Hi Melissa. Hi Tony. So you know Jess Phillips. Tell us about when you met her and what you think of her. Oh god I don't even remember the first time I met her but what I always remember from my meetings with her has been her candour. She's so vivid. You know how a lot of people, when they talk about politics, you're asleep within 30 seconds. But with Jess, I think if you've been asleep, you'll suddenly wake up and want to hear more. So she was my first choice. So, Tony, your job today is to get her off message, because I always think MPs, politicians can kind of go on message, slip into their usual kind of... You know, they've said. I don't all the know why they theme. do it. It's so it's tedious. tedious. Let's not make a tedious podcast. Okay. Let's make a good podcast. If she starts going on message, I'll shout and stamp my feet. Okay. Good luck. So we get the news about Jacinda Arden, and it, that comes at a time when I had thought that there were more women in more powerful positions in politics. What went wrong? Jacinda Ardern did seven years, and by British political standards at the moment, that's an absolute marathon. But (laughs) But not normally. (laughs) No, but not normally. If you then look at people like you, you Angela Merkel's as the example, or the many, many men I could name who stayed in power for, you know, 10 years plus. And, And actually, you could make this argument in the case of Jacinda Ardern that their popularity with it in their own countries although globally that might be completely different was potentially waning that there was a political element to Jacinda Ardern's decision I'm sure that's true but then you get loads of male prime ministers who just carry on yeah getting a bad time and just carry on one of the things that has justified women coming into politics is the argument that power should be to serve a purpose not just to cling on to it and we've 
had to ask men to vacate power to make room for women. And I think women are conscious of that, that they're there for a reason. They're not just there for power for its own sake. And I think they realise that once their... Usefulness. Best, yeah, yeah, exactly. Their usefulness, their, their best value had expired they weren't going to carry on clinging on for the sake of their ego they felt it was the time to go and they you know they they lived by the example they set they they decided to move on and i think it would actually be wonderful if more men did that as well but i know i know a lot of uh, women i have to say tories as well as Mm. uh, other parties who clearly went into the business of politics because they wanted to change things Mm. and yet something seems to happen to the vast majority of men where they almost become parodies of themselves as politicians don't they was i don't notice that so much yeah i think i think that that women are much more likely to be driven uh whether it be by a sort of genuine sense of service or a specific issue that drives mm. them to to get there um whether you agree with that i yeah, personally don't agree with the issue of independence in scotland but that you know nobody could argue that that was the issue that drove her there but it didn't drive her there necessarily through the same route as it might have driven others it is it's from your heart uh, in a way and then that sounds terrible doesn't it like women are driven by their heart and all that but the reality of women in politics is usually that you are you both do wear your heart on your sleeve more readily and you are, or you are made to wear your heart on your sleeve more readily and that is much more tiring you are you are also held to a higher standard because of that so if you you mess up and obviously we have got a really good example of a woman who messed up uh, of late uh, in UK politics and Liz Truss Liz Truss but she left she left that you know we also have a really good example of a man who messed up and he had to be dragged out kicking yeah. and screaming. So there I'll, is I'll, I'll interject and say Boris Johnson, <laughs> Boris just in Johnson. case there's anybody who didn't realise who you were talking about. Um, and he's always constantly trying to come back as well. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is when you are a woman in politics and you care about a specific thing, you are held to such an inordinately high standard compared to some of your male counterparts, not just on that thing, but also on levels of perfection. You also have to show, and I think that both, uh, certainly Jacinda Ardern must have felt this in space, she had to show empathy all the time. And that doesn't come for free. It is incredibly tiring to feel other people's feelings. Um, all the time and I often think that the the value of myself being a member of parliament sat in my constituency surgery opposite somebody who's been through something terribly traumatic I think one of the upsides is that I am much more at liberty to lean across the table and give them a hug and feel their pain alongside them in a very very human uh, and really connected way but that doesn't cost me nothing it does cost me something it is tiring to wear those clothes how much is that a a modern perception and a modern preoccupa- uh, preoccupation? I'm thinking of someone like Nancy Astor, who I think was mm. either the first or one of the first mm-hmm. women MPs in England. I don't think she would have said what you've just said. No, 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 that's almost certainly true. <laughs> no, but we, women have been facing gender stereotypes since the dawn of time, but those gender stereotypes are not necessarily constant. They evolve over time, and so any woman in any given situation is having to deal with the assumptions about her specific to that cultural context. So Nancy Astor was up um, in a scenario where people doubted women's ability to think for themselves. Um, that those women were just sort of basically seen as an extension of their husband and their husband was better qualified to make a decision on something as important as voting. And so I think she she wasn't so much expected to show her emotional warmth as to prove her intellectual capacity i should just interject and say for those who don't know uh, nancy astor was one of the very first uh, women mps she lived in a really posh house Mm. she got a really a posh husband she was terribly opinionated she was also a big fan of hitler yeah she was uh, (laughs) i think a famous anti-semite um but yeah she was um Uh, She was the first woman to take her seat in the House of Commons. The actual first woman elected was elected from a prison in Northern Ireland and was unable to take her seat. (laughs) I I do find it interesting. Neither of those are the stereotype, are they? (laughs) No, not quite. (laughs) I do find it interesting, though, that the the particular stereotype that that you're Mm -hmm. talking about, which we know 
all this way of talking it's all shorthand not every of good course. not every woman is is mother teresa and not every bloke is wears jackboots but but we understand sort of yeah. roughly where where we're coming from but I, I have a problem when when i'm talking about this with other blokes which is i want to argue that in my business like in in television if there is a woman producer or a woman director by and large it alters the feeling in the room and it alters the way we look at the text. It also normally we we get better hotels. Uh, <laughs> normally we get the kind of breaks that the trade union movement fought for <laughs> for a century, which uh, male directors by and large don't give. And I genuinely think that's true. But then what am I doing? I'm just sort of setting up a stereotype mm-hmm. that can be knocked down. I think men and women are different, um, whether that's by design or, uh, you know, it's nature versus nurture. Um, there are differences. Um, and, you know, we, from a very, very, very early age, are groomed to behave in a certain manner, even if you've got the most feminist parents uh, as I had. Um, you know, I grew up with three brothers and still, you know, and my, you know, I went to women's liberation play group for God's sake. So it's like, you know, re-education camp for for kids. As did all my brothers go to women's liberation play group. As did my Brilliant. husband, incidentally. But um, the, you know, I still my I still got a smaller dinner than everybody else when I was being served food. And you still there was still an element where I was asked to do things that they wouldn't be asked to do. It's a constant unconscious. And you know, you I no matter how much I can push against that, women are raised in a different environment to men. There's no yeah. two ways about that. Yeah. I love the fact that uh, Jess highlighted the big difference as the size of her dinner. dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That, also, my dad used to like always offer them a whiskey when we, even when we were like adults, and I'd just sit there. And I'm like, "What am I, chopped liver?" Yeah. Like they'd all serve themselves a drink. Did Did you have anything similar in your childhood? Uh, I was definitely asked to do more of the housework than my brothers, but I think going back to this idea of whether you know there's a sort of a fundamental difference between men and women. I think every person is an individual in terms of their. Uh, their nature, their personality traits. And so we see plenty of of women who have so-called masculine personality traits and men Mm -hmm. have so-called feminine ones. But we are all, as Jess said, we're all socialised into gender. And so even if we don't have innate differences, we do have socially constructed differences. Can can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, um, I'm going to give the... um, example of being agentic versus communal and I'll explain what those mean so to be agentic is to follow your own agenda to um, be sort of self-serving in a way to be instrumental about what you want whereas being communal is more self-sacrificing it's about thinking of the needs of the community it's about how you can serve others and women generally in life are socialised to be communal, that their role is to serve others, whereas boys from a young age are encouraged to be agentic. It's about them. And I think that comes back to what we were talking about at the start of this discussion, actually. We saw an example of more communal behaviour from Sturgeon and from Ardern that they saw that their time was up and they stopped, whereas clinging on to power to the very last minute for the sake of it, that's agentic behaviour. That's I want power to serve me. Um, and so even if that's not an innate personality difference, we are so deeply imbued in that culture that it becomes a part of us whether we like it or not. What about the actual structures around politics? I mean, the obvious one is if you're having to look after a baby, it's going to mm. be harder to uh, hold down a full-time job in Westminster if your family are in Ab- Aberdeen. Um <laughs> Are those structures still a big problem? Yeah, definitely, uh, without doubt. And that there is, uh, funnily enough, the the sort of main argument about whether it's a family-friendly environment to work in politics more broadly. And bear in mind, you know, if you're a member of parliament or certainly the leader of the country, you're at the top of the tree and likely getting the best of the best. Whereas there's, you know, thousands of people who work under us who almost certainly get paid much less and it's much, much, much harder, but they actually live by the same hours that we live by. Um, but yeah, it's the, 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 the problem comes in the geography, actually, in, in what you're saying because the argument really I think would be well if we just worked nine to five in Westminster or even nine to five four days a week 
um, it would be much better. You wouldn't have the long night sittings. You wouldn't like. You could start the day at nine rather than sometimes starting it at two o'clock, which is absolutely great if your family live in London because then you'd have a normal life. I want to do. 14 hour days in three days so I can go home to my family yeah. so the, the the definitely geography causes this sort of problem where you can't necessarily solve this problem because what's good is for the goose is not good for the gander in this instance um, and and it, you definitely what you create amongst women parliamentarians is a north-south divide um, mm. in this particular argument but w- one thing that you know that bothers me about some of this is that that actually the thing that would make the biggest difference in this in the country and then inevitably for um women working in politics is if men did more yes. of the domestic labor yes. and actually this argument never ever falls to the men in parliament to discuss actually what would be better for them and their families i am often asked to account for my children bear in mind one of my children is an adult uh, Keir Starmer for example his children are much younger than mine when he was elected they were like babies they were little children and I, you know he's never been asked to account for how he's coping with them is and whereas I am asked it all the time and and that's almost certainly accurate isn't it it is almost certainly accurate that it's probably more of a burden for me than it, it, it would have been for him. Uh, and that persists in society. Um, and until that problem is solved, we, we, you know, it's, we're just the top echelons of society struggling with it. Can you see other ways of solving it other than the fact that the blokes at home have got to step up more? I do think that's an important factor. I think it's important for a number of reasons. First of all, that men should do more of their share, that it takes more of the burden off women. But also, I think that there's a certain amount of complacency amongst men because they don't have to live that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if they did, maybe they would think differently about it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Jacinda Ardern, the fact that she had a baby mm-hmm. in power. She was actually only the second woman leader in the world to do that, the first being uh, Benazir Bhutto. Um, Whereas if you think about recent prime ministers of our time, oh, I mean, we've got, yeah, Boris Johnson, um, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. David all, Cameron. Yeah, David yeah. Cameron, thank you. Yeah, all had babies whilst prime minister and it was water off duck's back because well, there was someone else doing it. It just it seemed to have no relevance, did it? No, it so, had absolutely to, to no relevance no. whatsoever. Yeah. And, Whereas you, Jess. If I, I yeah, I mean. I, I, I know that you're a mum. Uh, in fact, when you came in, I said, yeah. oh, you, you've got two yeah. boys, haven't you? Whereas I would, there's hardly any of the men MPs that who, you would have any idea. children I would know anything about yeah. at all. And because we just sort of assume with a man that someone else is looking after his children for him it stops being an issue whereas even if you have a woman where there is someone else looking after her children for him as was the case with Jacinda Ardern you know her her partner became the full-time carer of their child people still ask it's still a thing uh, because people still expect the woman to be caring for the child so it's visible and grating even if those arrangements are in place and often what you see is then child as prop so like you know aren't they great because they're taking them to kick the ball around and you see these sort I had a Mm. conversation recently with um, a conservative member of parliament who has small children and actually I started talking to him about the the fact that there's constant newspaper articles about Rishi Sunak's shoes and the cost of them and I kept I just said to him why doesn't he just stop this by stopping wearing these really expensive (laughs) shoes so everyone can say it is 700 pound loafers you know he cut benefits or whatever I was just like he could stop that by not wearing those shoes and the Tory MP said to me he doesn't know how much his shoes cost and I was like that what do you mean he said because he didn't buy them and I was thinking oh you know because his diamond shoes are too tight because he's probably got people to yeah. do that for him because he's very wealthy and he's but this Tory MP just said to me well I wouldn't know how much my shoes cost me because my wife buys them Wow. I'm not going to say a word. I just was like, <laughs> all right, okay. What I would like to hear from the men in Parliament yeah. is gratitude that isn't patronising for the fact that half of their life's admin is done by somebody else. Mm. Yeah. And the women in Parliament do that admin by and large completely as well as doing the job. Now, I have to say, I don't. I don't know what size shoe my children wear. Uh, I've got a man for that. Like, I am an absolute outlier in that yeah yeah are you as far as the other women in your party in parliament are concerned do you think they do more of the 
in inverted commas, mothering. 100% they do. Of course they do, because even when you think that you're doing 50% of the childcare, you're not doing 50% of the emotional labour. You're yeah. not thinking, I've got to make sure that they get a place in college. I've got to make sure this form is done. There's, It's like the amount of thought... The mental load. The mental load uh, that comes with it. This was highlighted to me, actually, after the killing of Sarah Everard and women went... Uh, took to the sort of social media and said about how they walked home with their keys in their hands and they did this and they did that and my husband said to me do you do all these things I said from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep I am risk assessing everything in my life and he said to me if you had the time back from the moment you started doing this to the time to, to the day and you didn't have to do that labour of thinking about that that level of detail you could have made a perfectly good feature-length stop-frame animation film. That's his idea of very detailed. I could have made a Wallace and Gromit feature-length film, moving things tinily for hours, completely on my own. And that's just labour he has never had to do, and he was really aware. He's like, you could have sewn the Bayer Tapestry, you know, like, we could, we're missing out on so many brilliant things from both women leaders, from women all across the world because of the labour, the emotional load of the labour that we have to do just takes time. So even those who think, yeah, well, I look after my kid 50% of the time, like, that's a thing anyway. Like, like we've got a graph where, it's like, the child shuts down at 50% until you hand it over. Like, nobody can actually say that. They're, they're not, by and large, doing that. Yeah. I've, last night I took my uh, granddaughter to the theatre and we had to come back via uh, Leicester Square, which, as you can imagine, was really rammed. Yeah. And suddenly my... And ten I were up just for like an hour. Yeah. In a way that they never usually are. Just protect the child, yeah. protect the child. Mm. If I was doing that twelve hours a day and having to make key decisions in my constituency, <laughs> I wouldn't last one turn. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, add on to the fact that you will like Jacinda Ardern would have and any woman in Parliament that you're not just doing that from a sort of like, you know, a hypersensitive. There is actually people every day threatening to kill you. So, like, yeah. add that in, add that very, very realistic element in. I was just in the tea room before I came out here and a Member of Parliament uh, was sat saying that, you know, the police had had to turn up to an event she was at and she had to go and find her children because of a, a, of a credible death threat that had come in against her. So it isn't, you know, my, my granddad used to say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean the bastards aren't trying to get you. Yeah. You know, they, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he said it in a completely unpolitically correct way which I shan't repeat but um, okay let's, but let's look at this a bit closer I, I know it's something that, that you're both really concerned mm-hmm. about and although I've had a, a tiny little bit mm-hmm. of this kind of anger and viciousness because all people who are on the telly do <laughs> I, it's certainly like a, about a trillionth of what I imagine most MPs get when did this start to occur as soon as there was Twitter as soon as there was Facebook Oh, it predates social media. Social media has simply made it easier for more people to do it. Um, and so I think it's amplified a pre-existing problem. But the reason why people attack women in politics isn't because we have Twitter. It's because people don't like seeing a woman who has power and an opinion. And it's ultimately not about trying to... I mean. It, very sadly with with cases like joe cox it is about trying to kill a woman but most of the time it's about trying to silence a woman Mm -hmm. and by extension trying to silence women more generally yeah that's definitely the case i um read um a a brilliant account of one of the headscarf revolutionaries there's a group of women activists uh, led by a woman called lil balakwa in hull um about their 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 husbands were trawler men and they were trying to fight for safety uh, on the trawlers and this was you know decades and decades ago there was no social media and the accounts in the newspapers of this uh, this politically active group of women it, you could have literally picked it up directly from stuff that people say about me on twitter mm. about you know her being vile and stupid and a prostitute and like she's she's a foreigner because she was from malta and it was like really racist it was but it was like you know her and a big fishy mouth and like it was just exactly the same so i agree it does it predate it it's just you cannot now escape it just that is incredible that particular example because mm-hmm. in exactly the same place in hull in the middle ages when people started to get a bit more money were spending more money on fish the men used to go out uh 
doing the trawlers. The women stayed at home organising the job for the first time for, I don't know, you know, a couple hundred years, maybe. Women had some kind of financial control. And so they were giving it and not, not just taking it. And that was when you get the things like the Skull's Bridal, you know, that mask that they put on women just to make sure that they didn't speak that <laughs> the language of, of witches started to co- come in and exactly that same stretch of coast yeah oh my gosh hull let's do we need to go there <laughs> and investigate why it is responsible for terrible social media outpourings john prescott's um, constituency yeah well i mean <laughs> I, I think there's a causation and correlation issue here but yeah you, you know as wherever in history you find women taking any sort of power you will find uh, even divine power even queens even you know i've read more about like you know the fact you know the fact that certain queens didn't have children is like obsessed over um in a manner that you just it's just not the same uh, and their their sexual deviancies and all that sort of thing but wherever you find it in history you will find the idea of witchcraft you'd be surprised how much that continues in our culture that idea that of hysteria uh, mm. in fact i just came from the statement where the home secretary literally accused us of being hysterical like the idea that you are hysterical and you're mad and you're being driven by some demon is it, it continues to this day so you know they you know down in hull they know what they're on about Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Coming Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guests this week, Labour MP Jess Phillips and politics professor Rainbow Murray. Let's look a bit more at, at what has happened recently. I take your point absolutely, Rainbow, that, uh, that this kind of violence has always been there uh, mm. against women, but certainly in the last few years, the, the abhorrent use of language on media Mm -hmm. towards uh, women MPs has been on another scale completely, isn't it? I think scale's the word. Um, I think the nature of the abuse isn't new. It's the scale of it. Mm -hmm. It's the ease with which people can do it, not least because social media for a lot of people means anonymity, which means they can do it with relative impunity um, and they can do it as much as they like. And it's difficult to stop them. And it's in some respects more difficult at the moment now that um, Twitter's pretty much laid off every person responsible (laughs) for trying to control that. Um, And it's also difficult because, you know, there's a freedom of speech issue. But I think when people talk about freedom of speech, they don't talk about the freedom of women to speak, (laughs) which is what is curtailed when they are silenced by this continuous onslaught of Mm. abuse. So I think that needs to be taken into the equation. It needs to be something that we consider when we think about the right to express yourself. It, is, it doesn't surprise anybody who's ever been on any of the social media platforms that they were almost exclusively designed by young, white, libertarian, American men. I mean, Facebook literally existed to rate which girl at college was hotter. <laughs> so, um, and you know, the freedom of speech argument, the libertarian freedom of speech argument, which is a powerful one. I, you know, I don't underestimate that, you know, the idea that we should be careful to curtail freedom of speech. 
it, it, you're absolutely right. What they mean is freedom of speech for people that look and sound like them and mm. have their views. It absolutely, I've had incidences where young women have contacted me on Twitter because I've retweeted something that they've said that's really powerful and they've said, could you, could you stop? Could you undo it? Because I'm just getting loads of abuse. Mm. Um, and it is just directly the same as almost all violence against women and girls. The first thing we have to do is neg somebody. So make them feel like uh, they're they're basically worthless. So be negative about them. Then you have to isolate them um, with silence and stopping other people talking to them. It's it, it follows the exact same pattern as how misogyny plays out in women's lives generally. And it is just scale. You're absolutely right. I cannot get away from it. Like, there's now, like, 700 platforms to have a go at me rather than just, like, you know, writing something horrible, a letter to the <laughs> newspaper. Do they always say the same things to you? I, yeah. I always get small at you, small, <laughs> etc. Et et <laughs> talentless, old. Yeah. <laughs> a few others I won't go into. Now. Yeah, yeah, it's always the same. Uh, it's always about your body. Uh, your physical features will always feature... Um, the worst of it, in the worst cases, it's always about sexual violence occurring to you. There's like this sort of obsession, sort of knowing that that's the worst thing to say with impunity. Um, so it often goes to that. Um, often, uh, for women, much so, more so than men, it will it will invoke your children. Invoking Whoa. your children is a very very common thing to do. So, how, sorry, this sounds like the, the the worst question ever. But how does it make you feel? you do get used to it isn't that awful um you do get used to it it makes me feel a mixture of things sometimes it makes me feel desperate and sad and upset and like i don't want to carry on and this woman i was talking to today in the tea room she was just like i sometimes think is it all worth it and i just said to her like will your children be any safer in the long term if you stop it like if you mm -hmm. stop doing what you're doing the answer is no so you know you've got to play the long game rather than the short game sometimes it makes me feel defiant and um like i'm winning uh that's the truth like you know if you have no dissent then you're not very interesting maybe <laughs> yeah. uh, i'm you know, I wouldn't. I don't want these people to agree with me. I want to piss them off in yeah. a lot of cases. But you know, there are moments. If I'm down, I mean, I'm medicated for anxiety because of the level of threat that is against me. So, and I'd say that's probably a standard uh, procedure these days in the House of Commons. Um, I'm not saying they're pumping it into the water or anything. Although maybe they should. That's a good idea. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to deal with when when you're at a low ebb with other things in your life. It can really attack you. It also, it must have been a very difficult decision for you to make to go to the doctor and say, I can't actually quite always handle this without yeah, a yeah. bit of help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although the doctor, <laughs> to be fair, when you've lived through, like, you know, two of your colleagues being murdered, uh, a terrorist incident in your place of work where you're wrestled to the floor, the idea that you're not going to get PTSD from that's those sorts of occurrences. I mean, I've li literally... And I was with all the families um, who whose families were, who either survived terrorist incidences or um, were families were killed in them the other day and they kept saying to me of course you understand and I just completely forgotten that I was in a terrorist incident like it just it's just one of those things that we've just learnt to deal with um can you tell us what that incident was the Westminster when the man broke into Westminster oh, and um the Westminster Bridge uh, attack where we drove in and uh, I mean we were locked in for hours and I was we were like pushed to the ground by people with guns like these are incidences of extreme trauma and you you are just expected to deal with it as part of your job um and joe was my friend and she was murdered in the street and i literally entered into a state of um denial actually i just sort of couldn't believe it when it had happened and so yeah you know i think that it's it is hard to go but when you start saying that sort of thing people are like it's a wonder you're not madder <laughs> Joe Cox is always whenever anyone says that name there's always sort of like inverted commas around there like mm -hmm. she was Mother Teresa or, yeah. or something but I mean I only knew her just slightly but she wasn't Mother Teresa <laughs> no, she was she's a, a good kid wasn't she she was a good kid but she was a normal human being yeah. my my favourite memory of Joe is that she would uh, she would 
steamroll into things often sometimes with not much thought and she left me like nine messages on my answer machine being like it was about the, there was an incident where a woman had been sent home from work because she refused to wear high heels Joe was incensed uh, and she uh, left all these messages on my uh, answer machine saying, right on Monday I'm going to arrange for everyone to come in we're going to wear the biggest heels like we're going to be like you know like drag queen size heels like I'm going to arrange it all and then she's like kept, it kept cutting her off because she was going on and I've organised it with this and I've spoken to Laura Coonsberg and I've done this and I've done that and then just the, the first message I actually heard uh, because it was the latest one was her going oh uh, it turns out Parliament's actually shut on Monday so <laughs> she, she wasn't perfect like nobody is perfect but she was pretty she was absolutely the, the thing where we started she was driven by something she had seen and the refugee and migrant crisis she had worked alongside specifically in Syria at, at the point that Assad was um, sort of raising his game to the worst possible efforts was when Joe was first elected and she wouldn't have rested and it was you could see how tiring it was to not make progress on that particular issue you could see that you know we were all annoyed but for her it it cut deeper and that's those those cuts they stay with you forever your body keeps the school rainbow what what we've just heard sounds like kind of sort of total pressure 24 hours a day do we know in general how that affects women mps how I'm, long do they stay for for instance? mps mps are humans yeah. I, they, they're, they're real people they have feelings and they have families so of course it's going to affect them and burnout and dealing with abuse is one of the things that both sturgeon and Ardern cited as things that eventually took too much of a toll but it's worth bearing in mind first of all that, that that men get this abuse too it's not mm. unique to women it's Especially just amplified for women men. yes um thank you and that was actually mm. my next point that it's it's not just gendered it's it's also racialized mm. um and it shouldn't be the price that people have to pay to go into politics it shouldn't be the case that you require medication to deal with <laughs> the anxiety created by people attacking you. And I think healthy dissent is an essential part of the political process. Yeah, people have to disagree with each other, otherwise there's no politics to be had. But <laughs> that can always take place. It, it's the violence. It's, yeah. it's the violence of it that is the problem. And I think that's what we need to tackle. And I think it has several damaging effects. I think it has a very high cost to the individuals who have to deal with it, as mm. we've already heard. I think it has a damaging cost to society because it silences particular mm -hmm. voices. We hear people self-censoring, we hear people withdrawing their comments on things. And I think the, the third cost is that it has, a, in a sense, a deterrent effect. That there are a lot of very talented, very able people who could serve this country really well, who don't, because they look at that and they think, that is more than I am willing to take. Tell and that's that, a loss to all sorry. of us. Tell us, uh, before you came, Jess, uh, she was a bit late. She, uh, she's the politician, no, they're always yeah, allowed to be late. late. Tell us about that thing that you, that you read on the way here. Um, yes, uh, the, in the last general election, 20 women chose not to stand again, yeah. and most of them cited the abuse that they receive as yeah. part of that decision to retire from politics. So it's not necessarily the only reason. It's it not necessarily cited. the only reason, but it's, it is a factor. And most things in life are not just one reason, mm -hmm. but it's cumulative. And it could be that the things that drove them into politics in the first place would have continued to drive them on had that not been the camel, the, uh, sorry, the straw that yeah. ultimately broke the, the camel's back. Yeah. That is too much. And it does matter because... Um, it's not enough to say, well, more women came along, which they did in the election, yeah. and replaced them, so what's, what's the damage? Because it, you, need, you need to be in politics for a certain amount of time to rise through the ranks, to yeah. get to the next level, to, to be a spokesperson, to be a leader, to be a mentor. And if we see that women are getting pushed out faster, that their careers are shorter, they're not reaching those higher levels that then enable them to to have that authority to get into the leadership roles to to mentor the next generation coming through um, and I'm not just talking about the UK here I'm talking about politics more yeah. generally that we see that the life cycle of a female politician tends to be shorter because women tend to get pushed out of politics by these things faster yeah. And that has consequences leading all the way up to... to Women are also much less likely to have as safe a seat. 
Yeah, um, that too. Because, like, you know, women are given the chance on a Hail Mary chance uh, mm. by political parties that are, like every, like every part of society, more likely to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, patriarchal. So, you know, I mean, my seat wasn't safe. It was, wasn't even Labour. Um, and so, actually, the level of work that you have to do then within your community, as well as work legislating and doing all that thing about rising up the ranks that you say at the same time as it is just it's just a sap on energy um i thought that it's supposed to have been addressed when labor instituted all women shortlists yeah i mean that's just a lie just explain that yeah which means that if you want to be an mp in some seats you could only stand if you were a woman Yes, that's right. So it's meant to be the Labour Party uh, has a, um, had a, had a quota system um, in parliamentary selections, and they had to be the you know the sort of fifty um, most winnable seats. Twenty five of them uh, would be uh, all women shortlists. There's ways to manipulate that to make it the bottom 25, of course, not the top 25. However, the target seats, 50% of them had to be women. But because of the Labour Party, we, and it worked, it did work, yeah. uh, because the Labour Party is now, I think, 53% women in the parliamentary Labour Party. I mean, largely because loads of men lost their seats, which, by the way, fellas, was not the plan. I, don't, I want more women, not fewer men. <laughs> Actually, sometimes I want fewer men. But um, specific men. My next question is, will <laughs> you name ones? Them? <laughs> ah, I mean... Some of them are really obvious. But the trouble is, the Labour Party has breached the 50%, so actually can't use all women's shortlists. Is that right? I never knew that. The law, I was wanting to challenge this. The government could change the law, but obviously it's not in, you know, their wheelhouse to do this because it's, you know, about equalities. Yeah, once you've gone past the 50%, once you are then the majority, there is a sunset clause in the Equality Act that means you can't use it anymore. You can still use it for councillors and and other things. You can't use it for police and crime commissions and you can't use it for mayors either just because they didn't exist when the legislation was written. And I've asked the Tories to write that in a, a million times, but we get nowhere with it. Let's look at this thing about leadership a, a bit then, because they had all women shortlists in the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. They bumped up the, the number of MPs. Mm-hmm. A Labour woman leader, nowhere in sight. No way. And yet, not only have the Tories, for better or worse, and that's not the issue right yeah, now. But not yeah. only have they had three, but if you look at the people bubbling under. I just scribble. I just scribbled yeah. down on the way here. Kemi, yeah. what's her name? Kemi Badenoch. Uh, yeah. Sweller, what's her name? <laughs> Nadine, what's her? <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, Pretty Patel, Penny Mordaunt, yeah. Andrea Ledson, Nikki Morgan. They've all been named as real kind of like you know hot tips yeah. for the leadership. Boy, oh boy, are you struggling with that as far as I, the Labour Party? Absolutely, concerned. that is the case. And, and and there is a couple of explanations I think for it. I mean, the first one is the obvious one. Sexism. <laughs> there you go. It exists in the Labour Party. Shock horror. Also, the the left often do this brilliant thing of of, um, <laughs> of congratulating themselves for their goodness without ever doing any of the self reflection about where they might not be good. I think the Labour Party has potentially just come out of a period where that was absolutely the case. They can't believe they're the baddies uh, sometimes, and sometimes they are. Also, I think to be a Labour woman is uh, a different proposition to being a Tory woman. Go explain that. Because being a Labour woman is a radical thing uh, and it presents to your political party not just a shift in the normal right versus left um, haves and have-nots divide, is that if a Labour woman was the leader of the Labour Party and then the country there would be massive and radical changes to the power structures that exist in our country. And that is sometimes threatening for the men in the Labour Party as well. And so it's harder because it's not true of it's not true of any of the Tory women. The Tory women who rose to the top never ever posed any threat to the power that was held by Tory men in the country. However, a Labour woman would. Was that true, do you think, Rainbow, of uh, Mrs Thatcher? That she didn't throw, pose any threat to the Tory men? Yeah. Um, um, yes, and I mean, obviously she displaced a man in the <laughs> sense that she became the, the leader, but she was very clear from the outset that she was 
not trying to create a more feminized political structure. She was quite happy to be a sole woman in a man's world. So she surrounded herself by men. She, in all of her governments, she only ever had one woman and that was in the first one and then she went. So she was quite happy to surround herself by men. She was quite happy to play by the men's rules of the game. She never sought to change them. Um, She changed herself, you know, she, she, Famously, she lowered her voice to sound more like a man. Um, and <laughs> I don't need to worry about that. She should have just smoked Benson's from the, an early age. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was not, as just said, she was not threatening in the same way. And she would do certain things to walk the very fine tightrope that a lot of women in politics have to walk between masculinity and femininity. Mm-hmm. Because politics is associated with masculinity. Politics is imbued with masculinity. And it can be quite difficult as a woman to navigate that because as a woman you are expected to conform to femininity. That's a social expectation. Mm. But as a politician you're expected to perform masculinity. And so a lot of women who are more feminine in their approach struggle to be taken seriously as politicians as leaders but if they become more masculine in approach then they struggle to get anyone to like them as as soon as as soon as you come across as as tough as hard-nosed as opinionated people start hating you um uh, if you're a woman uh, those those are not traits that we she did an amazing expect. job of that yeah all so, credit to her so she 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 did the masculine leadership and she did it in a skirt with a handbag and as if to say look you see i'm a woman uh if i'm going to yell at people in a meeting i'll do it with my handbag and that was a way i guess of, of reconciling those two quite difficult to reconcile that's a, a, a it's a very interesting moment this jess has got her <laughs> arms folded her head on one side like she's in a boozer <laughs> talking to her mates going yes all credit to mrs thatcher that's and right, her head. I, well, well what do you mean by that what i mean is right mrs thatcher in the 1970s rose to the top of what was not just a patriarchal institution she, it was you know class ridden to its very end now mm. by any of today's metrics Mrs. Thatcher would have been work. It was relative, you know. While she, you know, she wasn't poor or anything. She was essentially from the respectable working class, and she rose up the ranks of the most conservative, both with a small and big C organization, to take it over, and then managed to talk to to act masculine and not be hated. She was a little bit hated. To I be mean, fair. I was, but when I, I thought that, I thought in my, that's why I was sort of had my head to the side. Is that in my house, Mrs. Thatcher, there is nobody in history, I mean, literally nobody, who was as vilified as much and hated. And it made me stop and think, was some of that because she was a woman? And the mm. undoubted answer is yes. Yeah. Um, she she would have hated that I might try and defend her on that point, so I'll do it. Uh, but, I, I mean, she was grotesque. She was seen as being like... A, a gargoyle, a, a, a thing of absolute, complete and utter vitriol. And I just don't think that that would have happened that, if she hadn't was have been a woman. She, wasn't, she, she was wasn't, terrible as well. She <laughs> wasn't compassionate. And so yeah. she did not fit the expectations yeah. that society has of a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she just would not have been so vilified for that lack of compassion if she'd been a man because it wouldn't have been expected in the same way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, I was just thinking about, about what you were saying about that, that vilification and I was part of it you know <laughs> during the minor strike you, you always said Thatcher but you yeah. always said it with, there was a kind of energy in the way yeah. that you said Thatcher and, and, and still I think uh, that is the case was like the home secretaries weren't cited in the same way although they were the ones clearly who were doing the heavy lifting as far as the, uh, the miners dispute was concerned there yeah. were a whole number of people who could equally well have shared that Blame, which is actually what we've been doing as far as, uh, say, Dominic Raab, and he he really yeah. gets it in the face. And, and Suella Braverman, yeah. Suella Braverman, really, like you know, she she doesn't do anything without Rishi Sunak's say so, and yet she will be put up to throw red meat to people that he he's not willing to do it. Now she might be very willing, and she might really feel that way but actually in Thatcher's era you wouldn't be talking about Suella Braverman you'd be talking about Thatcher yeah. you absolutely you're absolutely right There's the only a- other person I can remember from the Thatcher years was Baker because we've got Baker days and got a day off school <laughs> <laughs> There's another thing I think about for me about the the difference between potential particularly labor leaders mm-hmm. and their genders 
And it's about how they present themselves. In the last 10 years or so, the two women who have seemed to me to, to get nearest um, uh, any kind of leadership mm. role uh, have been Harriet Harman mm. and Margaret Beckett, mm. both of whom I, both of whom I know mm. reasonably well. And then there's something quite sort of almost shy about them and, and, and deferring, and mm. they're, they're both terribly charming and very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see why they would have risen up the ranks to the nearly level. Yeah. But then you look at the... the the bolder women, as you were, the the Mo Molans, the Barbara Cla- Castle, Cla- Barbara Castle, mm. uh, Claire Shaw. I think even Angela Rayner is. Mm. You kind of think, however talented they are, they're never going to be leader of the Labour Party because they're like way and whoa and way. But blokes, that would be a real big plus. Yeah, mm. I, I, yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, that, there's no two ways about that. I think that it's funny. Harriet, when, when I was first there, Harriet came up to me and she said, if I watch you speaking when you first arrived and then I look back at me speaking when I first arrived, I mean, bear in mind, she was pregnant and one of like 11 women. I mean, unbelievable. She said that she looked up from under her hair and she said it's like Princess Diana. <laughs> like, and, and you just come in and are like, you know, fuck it. <laughs> um, and I can't, you know, that that sort of politics now that what I'm allowed to do existed because of people like Harriet Harman without without a shadow of a doubt. But you're absolutely right. They would have had to. They had to. Uh, the way to rise up. Uh, it's exactly what I was saying before. Is that that radical idea that being like that? And actually, I don't know that there's many people in politics who have had such a radical career as Harriet Harman. But the you know the threat is too great to the power structures that exist if you are i'm gonna absolutely blow the bloody doors off this it's frightening to the people you're asking to vote for you and when i stood uh, in the leadership election i wanted to go to those meetings and tell people that they were self-indulgent but you can't do that and then expect them to vote for you <laughs> it was like, I, I i wanted to ask you about that actually because, like, you came out with this great, uh, great rush, yeah. and, and I thought, oh, I'd put a bit of money yeah. on her <laughs> to be lead. But it seemed, did it implode? It wasn't that it imploded. It's that that I did it actually specifically for one reason, and that was to make loads of people join the Labour Party. I am very, very popular outside of the Labour Party. I'm less popular inside of the Labour Party, which is absolutely fine. There's more people in the country than there are in the Labour Party. I wanted more people to come and take part in it, uh, and the, you know there was a sort of process for that. But you know, like unlike and, and and there are people, there will be people doing this now in every single political party, planning twenty years in advance. I didn't do that. Somebody was like, "Will you just give it a go?" Because we need to like open it up. I was like, "Yeah." It's literally like that. And you can't run a political campaign like that because you need vast amounts of money. Uh, also, I just hated it. I can't tell you how much I hated it. It was the worst few weeks of my life. And at every stage I wanted to stop. Because I cannot... I'm not good at delivering a line. I'm just not. I'm good at delivering my own line. You're Uh, not good at delivering the party line? Yeah. I'm not good at saying to a room full of people, you're right about everything, you're brilliant, you are my church, when I think... You've behaved appallingly and you've got to stop it. Yeah. Um, and like, I just felt like I wasn't willing to say some of the things. And, and also, I just really hated, and this is, the, I think, some of the difference between men and women. I hated the machine. I hated the. I hated having nineteen people stood around me at all times, telling like, eat, like, and they're perfectly good and they were doing a good job. But I just, I want to feel my politics not just deliver it um and that's you know and i just found the whole process to be robotic and i hated it so actually i think that that's incredibly popular in the country but not in the labor party that's fine i can see the point that you make about what a struggle and how nasty it can be to really put yourself up there as leader so how does the first one, how does the first woman in her particular country get there? What happened in Scotland? With Nicola Sturgeon? Well, one of the interesting things about the Scottish Parliament is that it was a new institution. It was created in 1999. And when you have a new institution, you don't have male incumbents thinking it up who've been there forever. Um, so she was elected to a new institution on the same terms as the people around her. And so she got to do ministerial roles pretty much from the get-go because... 
everybody was new so she got to to cut her teeth quite quickly she got to do a bit of health a bit of education a bit of justice um so five years in she was ready to run for the leadership and she did um she didn't get it uh she decided to throw weight behind alex salmond and that worked out quite well for her not just because you know uh, um, she was she was second in command but because he was still a member of westminster and so while he was a member of westminster he could not lead his parliamentary party um in uh, the really, scottish parliament yeah. so she was the, effectively the leader of the opposition for three years whilst salmond was serving out his term in westminster and so that gave her the opportunity to be the de facto leader in parliament so when he stood down and they were looking for a replacement no one stood against her she was already made herself so authoritative and established that a lot of people who probably thought about it decided do i want to run up against her no and uh, she ended up unopposed that's interesting so it was specific circumstances which led her to have a big body of power before she actually stood for the election older institutions will make that harder yeah yeah, i think the take-home point in all of this actually is male incumbency uh that is and uh, that also comes back to when you were saying about about women getting less winnable seats and having to challenge that that when men are there first They, they stitch it up. They, they already have the positions of power. They have a head yeah. start. Um, and that makes it much harder for women to break through. Um, but you can't keep creating new institutions, obviously. So the, the challenge is when you do create them to, to make them robust so that they stay gender equal. And actually, the Welsh Assembly was a bit of a disappointment on that front mm. because it hit the ground running, 50% women, and that's actually gone down over time. Do we know why? Uh, patriarchy. <laughs> that's the answer to every question. <laughs> I think in all fairness to our listeners, you ought to open up. A little bit more than just patriarchy. (laughs) Even when an institution is created as a new body without incumbency, without that legacy, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. It comes out of a society with structures and people don't join politics in a vacuum either. There are always going to be people who are there first, people who have a certain expectation of how things are done, certain ways of working, um, certain agendas, certain power games, um, and then some of the other things we've been talking about today things like the difficulty um of juggling with family life the abuse that women face so you can fix some of these problems but when it is so multi-pronged it can be quite difficult ever to eradicate enough of them to actually get to a level of of, uh, a level playing field and parliamentary politics is so based on a culture of stitch up isn't it oh yeah that it's You've got to kind of, you've got to kind of get enough women stitching. If you well, I mean, excuse whenever the Whenever any woman comes to talk to me for inspiration about how to, I'm like, have you spoken to this person? Do you know this person? Stitch it up. Like you, you know, you have to do the stitching, and we're much better at stitching. So, <laughs> but not so good at stitching up. I I've had the time to make the bare tapestry, but yeah, absolutely. Who do you well, admire? Who? Oh, which? I mean, I massively admire Harriet Harman. Uh, you know, I don't admire anything about her politics, but to to not admire Margaret Thatcher is crass, in my view. Actually, mm. to admire what she managed to do at the time, I really wish that she was still here, so I could ask her, and she'd think I was terribly frivolous. But I would, you know, I think it is important. But you know, I massively. But actually, for me, the the people I admire are usually the women from the women's movement that you never see or hear of that get those women elected. Um, the women's movement that I grew up with, you know, like Women's Liberation Playgroup, which was literally a cooperative of women because there was no organised childcare. So they took it in turns. Ofsted would not have liked it. We once watched Poltergeist, I remember, and I was like three. <laughs> Play school came in once. We, we like made signs for Greenham Common and things like it was There was no education going on, really. But, um, it, you know, they, they were women who took it in turns because they wanted to go out and work and there was nothing in the, the state had organised. And that group of women fought to get women onto the local council uh, in our area so that they could then get the local council to fund childcare, which they managed to do. And then they, uh, you know, that, that same woman that I was thinking of, they fought to get her into parliament in 1992 and didn't succeed. It was always about, like, keep climbing the ladder to keep changing it. The women from the women's movement of the 1970s, certainly, that I grew up with there are so many admirable women uh, um, and and a lot of them 
working class women. <laughs> they're the people that keep. They're the people who invented the refuge accommodation that I worked in. They're the people who got me to Parliament. Is it easier for a woman to be successful in regional politics, in local politics, than it is uh, Westminster, Amber? Yes and no. I mean, some of the barriers that people face are quite similar. So childcare can be a barrier mm. as much for local politics and regional politics as it is for national politics. But one big difference is that you don't have the national politician salary. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I would say on that, actually, on that, on the national, polit- uh, the national politician salary, we need to bear in mind that that's the end game. That's what you get once you're elected. But often the financial barrier exists before you get elected and a lot of women end up running for seats that they're not going to win. Mm. And if you've got all those costs before you even get into office, then that mm. is an insurmountable barrier for someone who doesn't already have a nest egg to sit on or, you know, as in Thatcher's case, a nice wealthy husband to, to bankroll her campaign. Mm. Um, and in local elections and lo- local politics, there are different issues at stake. Um, the timings of meetings can be sometimes quite difficult to, to reconcile with other commitments, which is why actually a lot of people in local politics end up being retired. Um, but it is women have been less successful than men at using local politics as a springboard international office yeah Yeah. and one of the things that we've seen is that sometimes women who get into local politics get sort of pigeonholed into particular roles Mm. that aren't necessarily the kind of roles that do allow you to to springboard off of that so local politics ought to be a training ground but sometimes it can be more of a political graveyard it can be where your career ends rather than where it begins yeah i agree i was a local councillor before and just before my mum died on literally on her deathbed when i said i was considering it she said it won't be hard to shine on birmingham city council <laughs> <laughs> which i feel is the greatest thing she she ever said to me turned out she was right about that and it's true in parliament the yeah i, I actually think it's harder women in local government than it is there's a certain level of respect you get once you're in parliament um by the sort of national institutions that you you uh, whether that's the media or there is a certain cachet that comes with it amongst people um and i think it was geezler stewart who once said to me when i couldn't understand what was going on with something on the council or something she she was just like the trouble is the fights are the hardest when the stakes are the smallest and the nastiness that goes on on local councils that's why the sort of private eye rotten boroughs is so accurate because it is just absolute oh drudgery of i remember we used to have meetings to ha- about meetings about a meeting like we'd have it'd like you'd have to go to a meeting to discuss what how we were going to handle the meeting of the pre-meeting before the meeting of the council to like handle all the different parts like handle the labor group i just think i only went because it was baked potatoes in the meeting was nobody would have attended otherwise there's nothing i've seen about local government certainly where i come from that makes me think that it makes a fertile ground for women politicians. Mm. However, there has been some, you know, really notable examples of local authorities run by brilliant women um, of, of all political hues, uh, where they've they have been really able to make their mark. I think is Tracy Brabin the only mayor, the only woman mayor, Metro mayor. I think she is. And PCCs, Police and Crime Commissioners. There's been like three that were women out of many. So. I don't think it's any easier at a local level. Finally, give me one cunning plan (laughs) how we can get more women into Parliament and more women into key political positions. Like a Baldrick-esque cunning plan that isn't very cunning. My first (laughs) idea is, like, it isn't just about who like push it it's always about pushing people to step forward and it's women who have to do that work we have to find those women to push forward and then ultimately we have to rely on the labor of those women to do it sometimes it's about people stepping backwards um about insistence for me quotas is the only actual answer you have to have quotas and you have to have it now look if we if we cannot get the house of commons uh the elected quota, we do have a second chamber uh, in politics and you know in anything around Lord's reform what I would really like to see is the areas where we are lacking in politics to be filled up in a like a much blunter way like there's nobody who sits in parliament who lived in the care system like we make all the decisions about the care system so uh, I, I think rules is the only answer like genuine state control about who can and can't stand in certain places is the only thing that works. The cunning plan Rainbow. 
I would say select candidates nearer to the time of the election, which is not intuitive, but part of the problem that people have when running for office is that parties select their candidates sometimes years before mm. an election. They don't like getting caught out like they did with the two snap elections that we've had recently mm -hmm. where they didn't have their candidates lined up and then they had to choose them in a week. And that wasn't a very inclusive or, or um, helpful process. You know, they had to choose people very fast. Yeah, quite a lot of them but have gone actually, to prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some bad mistakes were made. So parties were keen to avoid that. But some of the people who, some of the people who got elected in the, those selections for a week, they said, I used my annual leave to contest the election. Mm. It was five weeks. I could call in a few favours from friends to look after the kids. I could do it. But when you select people four years out... I was selected two yeah, and a half years out. Yeah, and then they're expected to campaign, uh, if not full-time, and sometimes they are expected to campaign full-time, at least part-time for years. That is a huge commitment. It's a commitment that a lot of people can't make. And it's a financial commitment because you can't work full-time at a job. You can't build a career if you're expected to be effectively running for office for mm. years. It's a personal commitment. Some people felt, oh, well, you know, I'm not allowed to have... A family now, even though it's three years out from an election, because I'm already in campaign mode. When is the downtime? Yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah and, and one candidate uh, that I, I interviewed did get pregnant, not during the short campaign, but years out, and the party just hated her for it. So it's, it's a problem. This long, long campaign, this long period is a real barrier for people that don't have the financial resources, for people that want to have a family life, for people that need to have a career that isn't just politics because they're not confident about winning an election because it's not a safe seat. And so if you reduce that process, if you make it so that people don't have to stop earning, if you make it so that people can combine it with other things in their life, politics would be a lot more inclusive. And we did get a wider variety of people coming in we, as a result of those snap elections. True. There is, a, I would yeah. say, a greater sense of working class people yeah. across parties yeah. from the snap general elections. Yeah. And my fear is that you know the the negatives of the snap elections of the of the last minute selections mean that parties have reverted to type they're selecting earlier and earlier mm. and that has really negative well, consequences I, I think that if you select early you have to pay for it yeah i mean that's the other thing is you you know like we, we we're all against like unpaid internships and things i i mean i was selected two and a half years out i had two jobs i was on the local council i had two children under the age of five and my mother was dying and i was expected to camp I, I, not just expected i expected it of myself my the standards actually were put on me by me it cost me 40 pounds by the time i was elected to run for office so i'm not saying that i should necessarily have but oh that actually yeah maybe we need to pay people yeah. who are doing it yeah. that's the alternative it's like you know the idea that you can be a volunteer for two and a half years in a really really high scrutiny job it's ridiculous sure, if you're rich oh yeah jacob briggs mogg went all over didn't he yeah and, like took his nanny <laughs> on that note <laughs> <laughs> thank you both very much absolutely fascinating thanks for being so clear so candid i learned a lot and i hope the people who listen to this podcast learn a lot from it too Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson. And you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CanningCastPod. I said it right that time. Usually I have to do about four takes before I can say CanningCastPod. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. That way you won't miss a single episode. I'm Tony Robinson, this is my cunning cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald, and it's a Zinc Media production. <laughs>